All right, this morning we're going to continue in our journey through Acts. <clears throat> Before we engage the Word, I want to uh, invite you to stay in a quiet, sort of contemplative spot. And uh, would you just um, close your eyes, and I want you to consider this. And this is, this is just between you and God. Uh, and I want you to ask yourself, just honestly, um, what do I love more than God? So be, be really honest with, with yourself as, as you consider that for a moment. What, what do I love more than God? So just uh, st- stay in that space, and let's call a spade a spade. <clears throat> Whatever you love more than God is an idol. Um, so just for a moment, uh, take that thing that you've identified, or those things, or people, or, you know, whatever, and bring it before God. A, a really good definition of idolatry, and I, I would like to give credit where credit is due, but I can't think of who said this, and I'm sorry. But an idol is when we take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, often. So the thing, the thing that you love more than God <clears throat> might not be a bad thing in and of itself, but if you've elevated it above the status of God in your life, then that thing has become an idol. So, I mean... That can be your marriage, it could be your children, uh, which are both wonderful things, um, or it could be you know, a classic idol like alcohol or money or, or that sort of thing. So, so having identified that thing, um, let's call it for what it is, that that's an idol, and that loving that thing above and more than God is idolatry. And let's submit that to the Lord just in the quietness of our, our spirit and say, I would just invite you to say in your own words, um, God, I've worshipped something lesser than you. All right, now stay in your imagination, but we're going to switch gears here. Okay, pretend that you are on the run um, for your life. You're a fugitive. Okay? You're a fugitive on the run. You're innocent. Um, but uh, you're being chased for, for uh, a crime uh, that un- unfairly, okay? So you, you arrive at a place, and you're in hiding, um, and you're, you're in sort of a safe place where no one knows you. Um, what could possibly cause you to come out of hiding? What would make you so angry that, that you couldn't keep your mouth shut? that you would have to address the injustice. Does that make sense? So you're, you're a fugitive, you're on the run, you're in hiding, you're in a safe space, but then you see something that stirs the anger within you that's so unjust that you, you can't keep your mouth shut, so you, you have to blurt out, which of course reveals who you are and where you are and puts you back in trouble. So think about that for a moment. <clears throat> All right, come back to me. Wake up if you're asleep. Join me. Thanks for doing those uh, exercises. Um, I, hope, I hope the first one especially <clears throat> brought you to a place where you can have an ongoing conversation with God. Because every single one of us has things that we elevate in our life to the status of God that are not God. And that is idolatry. As worshiping a false God. When we love anything with the love that we are to have for God. Anything, nothing in our lives 
Nothing in our lives is to have the place of God. Amen? Nothing. We are to care for nothing and no one like we care for God. All right, so this morning we're going to be looking at the famous story of Paul in Athens. This, this might be the pivotal moment of his second missionary journey. He has been traveling with Silas. Um, the first part of this journey was uh, really well covered by our two Mikes over the last two weeks. So thank you, uh, both Mike Morby and Gensler, um, for, for your teachings on uh, the first couple of chapters of this journey. So this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. It started um, in Antioch, and then he moved up into the uh, Galatia region where he was revisiting churches that he had already planted up in here. And then he travels over into Europe, um, and he uh, goes down through here. This is where you guys were last week um, as he experienced uh, persecution. They experienced uh, trouble uh, here in this area, and then they moved on to Berea, um, and then... uh, the Jews from Thessalonica came down and, and started persecuting uh, Paul and Silas in Berea. So they put him on a boat and sent him down to Athens. And uh, that's where we pick up the story. I'm going to read uh, just the end of that portion of Acts. And this is in Acts chapter 17. And I'll have the passage up on the screen. But I want to read a few verses uh, before the ones I included. So let me turn there for a second. Um, so this is at the end of, of uh, 16, oh no, I'm sorry, the, uh, earlier in 17, starting in uh, verse 13, it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, But Silas and Timothy remained there. So Silas and Timothy remained behind in Berea to continue to teach and help establish this brand new church plant. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So some of the Berean uh, church, these new members, they came as far with him as Athens, which is pretty cool commitment for a new relationship to Paul. So they traveled by sea with him all the way down to Athens. In Greece, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul arrives in Athens and he says to them, As soon as possible, as soon as they are able, please send uh, Silas and Timothy to rejoin me in Athens. And that's where we pick up this morning. So this, this goes to where that exercise that we just played. Paul has been persecuted in multiple cities and he's kind of on the run. Right now, he, he uh, has moved on from Berea. At this point, he's faced uh, some pretty significant uh, pushback and persecution. His life has uh, been on the line several times. And now he's in Athens. And the point of getting to Athens was actually just to be a quiet place where he would lay low until his companions would join him. So he's on the run. He's a little bit of a fugitive at this point. He's been kicked out of the places he's been, and his whole mission at this point is to rest, to catch his breath, to lay low, to stay out of trouble until Silas and Timothy can join him. So I know this from very firsthand experience over the last couple of weeks. 
Uh, there is nothing that makes you tired like constant travel. When you're sleeping out of suitcases and uh, sleeping in hotels or, or places, and you're going to places where you don't know anybody. Paul doesn't know anyone in Athens. He doesn't have any friends here, and so he's like literally figuring it all out on the fly. Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? What am I going to spend my time doing? That's exhausting when you're living like that. And he has been traveling from place to place. So my guess is that Paul is pretty spent at this point. I think that he is probably pretty tired at, at this point. And so he's hanging out in Athens, laying low. But we know Paul and we know the story and it doesn't last for long. Why? Because verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, this is his whole mission, just hang out and wait for Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. All right, everybody say, this is a good word. Everybody say provoked. 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 His spirit was provoked within him. What that word means is he was angry. He was angry. This is uh, the same uh, word that's used to describe God's relationship and view towards idols. So this is the same word uh, that's used to describe how God feels about idolatry. God is provoked to anger by idols, by things that take our worship and love. Paul, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's not planning on this. He's sitting there and he's looking around and he sees all of these idols that fill the streets and homes uh, and temples and places in Athens. He sees that the city is full of idols and his spirit was provoked within him. Another question for you to ponder in your own spirit this morning. When have you been provoked to anger by idolatry? Or have you been? Have you in your life been in a place where you've looked around and you've seen idols and been provoked to action or wrath or anger? Because of idolatry. I hope you have. I hope you have. That's a good thing. Now how we handle that is is important. But it's a good thing to be provoked to anger when we see and experience idolatry. Verse 17, so he he can't keep his mouth shut. He can't stay quiet. He's provoked to anger. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. So that's a way of saying uh, the devout persons are the Greek God-fearing, God followers. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he goes into the synagogue in Athens And he starts talking about Jesus. He goes into the marketplace. He goes into the local grocery store. He goes into where people are hanging out. And he starts talking about Jesus again. Because his spirit is provoked within him because of the idolatry. 
verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he's not just talking to Jews and God-fearing people. He's also talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they begin to talk to him. And some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Epicureanism and Stoicism were the two main philosophies uh, of Greek thought during this time. And uh, they're still in vogue today by different names. They still go under different names. But Epicureans basically believed um, that there were a pantheon of gods, um, but they didn't interact with the physical world. And so there was the physical human world, and then there was the spirit world, and the two were like side by side, but they were separate dimensions that didn't interact with one another. So there was no personal relationship with the gods, because the gods were distant in a different realm. That was the Epicurean, the basic Epicurean philosophy. Stoicism um, believed that there was also the pantheon of gods, but it was much closer to Buddhism in the sense that it believed uh, Stoics believed that the divine spirit of a, of a god, a pantheon of gods, was in everything. So God was in the trees, and God was in the rocks, and God was in people. And, and you could as soon say in that philosophy, I'm God, because God is, is within me. And, and so there was an interaction between the spirit world and the physical world under Stoicism, but there wasn't uh, the idea of one God who created all things Um, out of his creative being. And so for both Epicureans and Stoics, it made sense to have idols. It made sense to have physical representations of what they believed was going on in the spirit world. And to worship these idols made sense because they believed this golden statue or this wooden statue that's in front of me, it uh, either represents God or God is in it because God is in everything. Now, Paul, the the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about Paul is that he was as comfortable speaking to Greek philosophers as he was speaking to to Jewish uh, teachers in the synagogue. This is amazing. He's, He's fluent in both Hebrew culture and in Greek culture. And so he, he seamlessly transitions from talking to the Jews in the synagogue to also conversing with these uh, Greek philosophers who then say, what does this babbler have to say? He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, in, uh, in Greek, the word for resurrection is a feminine noun, anastasis. Everybody say anastasis. All right, so when Paul was talking about Jesus and Anastasis, what they probably thought was that he was talking about two gods, a male and a female, Jesus and his female uh, companion. And so there's confusion there. What is this new teaching that this Jewish babbler is going on about, about this male, divine male and female? So there's confusion there. So, it goes on to say, oh, before I get into that, this is where we started. Psalm 115. Now, Paul is a man of the Hebrew scriptures, and he has hidden God's scriptures in his heart. And I, this is one of those questions, you know we have those questions, I want to ask Paul this, or I want to ask Peter that when I get to heaven. You have those things, right? This is one of those things, like, I'm 
I would be willing to bet someone else's money that Paul was thinking about this song at, at this point. I think, I think that, that Paul had Psalm 115 as he was being provoked to anger where he cannot keep silent. He can't keep his mouth shut and he's going to get himself in trouble again because that's what he does. I think he's thinking of this song. This is where we started our, our morning, our service this morning. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heaven, he, heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now watch this train of thought. It starts with, not to us, Give glory, but to you give glory. And then it says in verse 4, their idols, the world's idols are silver and gold. In other words, they're physical things. The work of human hands, made by humans. If you make something, it comes out of your own creativity, which means that thing that you made is made out of your image. Right? When I write a song... The song is written out of the image of DJ. When I write a sermon, the sermon is written out of the image of DJ. When we make false idols, it comes out of our identity. It's in our image. Not to us, God. Not to us. Not to the physical things we make give the glory, but to your name give glory. Because they're idols. An idol is a physical thing, the work of human hands. Verse 5, they have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And here is the key thought. This is is like one of the clearest teachings in the entire Old Testament about idolatry. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. When you make an idol, you become an idol. When you worship an idol, you become like an idol. We become like that which we gaze upon. We become like that which we worship. Whatever you worship, you will begin to reflect the identity of that thing. So the psalmist says, not to us, not to these physical things that we make, Give glory, God, but to your name only. Because whoever makes idols becomes like an idol. And all who trust in them become idols. I've preached on this before, but it is so worth saying again. Every idol desires one thing, ultimately. If you are engaged with an idol, the idol already has you. Right? You've already engaged it. It's already got its hook in you. So it doesn't actually want you because it's already got you. What every single idol wants, what it's seeking for, is your child. That is what idols go after. They go after your children. What is the ultimate sacrifice that a human can make to an idol in the Old Testament, a false idol? What's the ultimate sacrifice? Child sacrifice. Every idol, as you escalate, as it escalates the relationship between you and it, it finally, when it has you completely in its grip, what what it will ultimately demand from you is that you give it your 
child. Now the idol, the god of child sacrifice in the Old Testament was Molech. Have you heard the name Molech before? Molech was worshipped outside of Jerusalem, both before and after Jerusalem was under Jewish control. The god of Molech was worshipped right outside the city of Jerusalem. And Molech was the god that demanded child sacrifice. And the Jews at different times, the Israelites at different times in their history, actually gave in to that. And some even, uh, even sacrificed their own Israelite children on the altar of Molech. It was, it's been said, uh, it's recorded, that the screams of the infants... At this, at, at this uh, place, the furnace where they were dropped into for the sacrifice were so hor- uh, horrific that, that there was a 24-7 people whose job was to beat drums to drown out the sound of the screaming children as they were dropped into the fires. Now, when Jesus talks about hell as a place of weeping and gnashing, a place where the fires are not quenched, The place where the idol of Molech was became the city dump for the city of Jerusalem where they would burn their trash. It was on the same piece of ground. And so uh, in later history, the Jews used that same place for the burning of their trash. And so when Jesus is talking about hell and he's talking about the fires that do not quench outside the city limits, he's, he's using a picture of an actual physical thing that existed outside of Jerusalem, this place where where Moloch had been and then became the city dump where the trash was burned. And that's what he's like, this this is what idolatry leads to. This is what false worship leads to, child sacrifice, burning, weeping, gnashing, the fires that are not quenched. Um, Idols still make this same claim today. They still demand our children. The classic example of this is alcohol. Right, So uh, the more you engage with alcohol, the more alcohol has you, the more you become a slave to alcohol. What do we know about alcohol? If you struggle with alcohol, who's going to struggle with alcohol? Your child. It's a perfect example of, of what idolatry does. Now, there's more subtle forms of this in our culture. Um, I wish I would have thought to have the statistics for us this morning. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, but how many children... Every single day in America are sacrificed on the idol of comfort. What do you think abortion is? What do you think abortion is? Abortion is child sacrifice to the idol of comfort. Because we have a God in America, and it is not Yahweh. We have a God in America, and it's being comfortable. That is your God, American. It is being comfort. You will sacrifice everything. You will sacrifice your relationships for it. You will, you will sacrifice your children for it. You will sacrifice everything that you would be comfortable. This is the idol, the demon of our land. That's why our churches are all about making people comfortable and feeling good. Man, I'm tempted by this. Every single day, I'm tempted by this. So are you. To make your life about being comfortable, being happy, being fulfilled in your own version of whatever that is. 
and it demands our children, and we willingly give our children to this idol by the thousands, by the tens of thousands. It goes on to say, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord. You don't praise God when you're dead. You're dead. Nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise the Lord. Praise nothing else. Praise no one else. Praise the Lord. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 19, and they, this is the Epicureans and the Stoics, this is, these are the Greek philosophers, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is a famous place. Mars Hill, right? You've seen pictures of it. They bring him to this place, the Areopagus, and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, Paul's in a tricky spot here. Because the Areopagus, what it was, was it was the high court of the land where um, the council, the city council tried murderers and tried religious crimes and tried uh, political um, criminals and all sorts of things. This is, Paul, Paul is not just being asked about what he thinks, Paul is being put on trial and he is in a sticky situation. He's before these men that have the power to both uh, take his life um, or to let him go. They say, uh, for you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's kind of like our culture. They spend our time doing nothing but watching movies, doing TV, what, you know, just chasing after new things. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So I love this phrase, and it's so, it's so good. Every single person is religious. You can be an atheist, and you are religious. <laughs> every single person is religious, because religion is just what we give our, our time, attention, and worship uh, to. So atheists are religious. Uh, so are you, so am I. Paul says, I can see that you are religious in every way. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, what you are worshiping as unknown, let me make known to you. You've held out that there could be a God that we don't even know about. I'm going to tell you about him today. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is sort of the trump card. <laughs> 
This is God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. And everything who has breath. And everything that has breath. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward God, toward him, and find him. So in all times, in all places, God has put a hunger within us. Whether or not we've heard the truth, whether or not we've heard God, God has put a hunger in every single person who has ever lived to feel their way towards God. And to find him. But we can't. We can't find him. Because as we grope in the dark, the closest we can come is something made in our image. An idol. That's the closest that anyone has ever come to finding God. Is just an idol. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, this is really interesting. Paul's going to quote two things here. And both of the things here he quotes are not scripture. He's going to quote Greek philosophers back to the Greeks. Isn't that interesting? What he is going to quote to them as truth of God is actually from Greek poetry. He says, the first one, in him we live and move and have our being, which comes from a Greek poem. And the second one, uh, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, which is another Greek epic poem from classical literature. So Paul is drawing on classic Greek literature as authoritative in teaching about God. That should cause us to think and ask some interesting questions. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God is not like our images. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection, anastasis, of the dead, some mocked, some others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Now, it it would take about two minutes to read the sermon of Paul that we just read. Maybe less. His sermon was probably closer to two hours. These are the main points that Luke has boiled down uh, in order to fit in his scroll. So Paul was probably talking for a long time. And when they hear it, some were interested, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there's a man from the city council who sits on the council who came to Christ during this time. How beautiful is that? How awesome. He would have been an Epicurean or a Stoic, one of the two. And he comes to Christ along with this other woman who's, uh, she's named, so she was probably very influential, and some others with them. And then uh, Paul uh, leaves Athens, it says, um, in verse uh, 1 of 18, it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he leaves, having not waited for Silas and Timothy, he goes on to Corinth, because again, he's in a sticky situation here, and he just got out of it. 
uh, still alive. And so he quietly moves on to the next city in Corinth. And there, Corinth, this is his first time in Corinth. And Corinth, as you know, I'm sure, will become a major, major uh, important place for Paul the remainder of his life. And it's from Corinth that we get First and Second Corinthians, large portions of our scripture. All right, so this is the, the thought I want to end with. Uh, this whole exercise this morning of thinking of what we love more than God, of what would provoke us to anger, of looking at this scripture, um, I, th- I think I just want to say that Jesus is better. Amen? Jesus is better. than Whatever that thing is, Jesus is better. Whatever that idol promises, Jesus is better, which is the whole point of the entire book of Hebrews. And right at the beginning of Hebrews, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And his words to us through his Son are better. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, throughout this word this morning, I came down pretty heavy a couple of times. And I didn't mean to just come down heavy on you individually. Um, I'm speaking to myself this morning. I'm speaking to our culture but let's be people who deal with this. Amen? Let's be people who deal with our idols and are real about the fact that there are things we love more than God. Let's be people who face the truth and can come before God and say, I want nothing more than I want you. Maybe you're at a place today where you are honestly saying, I love God. I'm not sure I love him the most. I want to love him the most. That's fine. Start there. Press into that desire. If, if that's all you can say is, I want to love God more, press into that. Embrace that desire. We're like the man who says to Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I do love you, God, but in the places where I love other things more, I want to love you more, God. When I was 16, I asked my dad, how do you love God more? And he said to me, you talk about him. And I have found that to be true in my life. You talk about the things you love. You love the Phillies, so you talk about them. You love food, so you talk about it. You love your kids, so you pull out pictures of them every chance you get and show people them and talk about them. You want to love God more? Talk about him. Bind him. Like it says in Deuteronomy, bind his word, bind him into your life in such a way that when you wake up, you think and talk about him. When you go to sleep, you think and talk about him. Throughout your day, you talk about him. Cultivate yourself in such a way that you are provoked so that you can't keep silent. You talk about God when you encounter the idols of this world that are demanding people's children to sacrifice, to love something less than God. Gene, come on up. Uh, let's uh, end our time like we began it in the Word, and let's just uh, go to God quietly in our hearts and just say, I want to love you, God, with everything in me. Anything that I love more than you, God, I, I just want to name is an idol in my life. God, I just personally confess before my brothers and sisters, there are things 
that I often seek after more than you. Comfort being a big one for me. God, I just confess that that is a false God. That's an idol. God, the lust of the flesh, the desire for power, the desire for control, the desire to be seen by other people, fear of man, fear of, fear of whatever. God, anything but fear of you is an idol. God, I just I want to confess this to you. I invite my brothers and sisters here, this family of God, to say that there is nothing. You are the most precious, holy God, creator of heaven and earth. And you are so worth laying everything else down for and saying to you and you alone, to your name, to you alone be the glory, God. We bless you. We worship you. We pray and sing in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.